Well, brothers and sisters, a big part of uh, your study of God's Word and uh, your growing in faith is uh, learning to define your terms. Uh, In some cases, to redefine your terms. Uh, The relevant uh, operative question is always, what do you mean by what you mean? Uh, That's always a, a good question to ask. We we have a way of defining terms to our liking and, and by our own inclinations. But God's word comes along and, and it says, no, that's not what God is. Uh, that's not who you are. That's not what sin is. That's not what righteousness is. And, and that's not what salvation is and so on. And uh, we haven't dealt uh, with this much, mostly because... The Apostle Paul doesn't deal with it in the opening chapters of Romans so much, but it's Satan who is the foundational author of redefining terms and skewing thereby the truth of God. Uh, We are not wrong to say that it really is Satan's fault, although neither does Scripture declare us innocent in the matter. It's just that Satan's worst work was done in the beginning, in the original fall of of man. Since then, he is able to do his work through our own flesh. Uh, Satan doesn't need to whisper wickedness in our ears. He owns our flesh, which itself is wicked and dedicated to his purposes. Well, I'm, I'm throwing a lot at you at once, even within the introduction to this sermon, but the main point is to ask, uh, what do you mean by what you mean? Uh, And within this sermon, the question applies to our understanding of the law of God. So one clarification to be made from the beginning, and I I think this is not hard for us to understand, but it's it's that we, we should hear the word law... Uh, not as we tend to think of it, automatically thinking of commands, almost exclusively of commands that we must obey. Why do we do that? The law includes commands, obviously, but those same commands, if you can think about it this way, those same commands that we are called to obey are what others must obey in their relationship to us. In other words, the law can be just as much for us as against us. And yet, I think we tend to feel immediately constrained by by law. God is telling me what to do. Um, uh, But even on the basis of God's law being commands, we, we ought to be able to recognize that this is a good thing. It's a good thing to have the, the law of God. We, we need a God who, uh, who is himself the standard of what is right and good. And as much as we recognize our own deviance from the goodness that God is, yet we should still be able to see that the law of God is good. We began with this, this focus on terms most specifically on the reference we make to the law of God, because God's law is the central focus of this passage 
of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we might think, oh, the law of God. Yes, that's the, that's the business of Mount Sinai. Uh, that's the Ten Commandments. We even read the Ten Commandments earlier in this service. But that's not where the Apostle Paul starts. Uh, he starts with what we call natural law. Paul starts by pointing out, again, what we already know. Wouldn't that be great for teachers, whether at home or in, in the school, uh, to be able to say, okay, today I'm going to teach you what you already know. But that is exactly where Paul begins. So we need to begin with natural law. The word natural is a difficult word because, uh, once again, it depends on what you mean by what you mean. Uh, in other words, what finally is natural in this world? The easiest, quickest definition is to decide that natural means uh, what is the result of the fall and sin. And the Apostle Paul even uses the word natural in, in this way. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, he, he writes and teaches, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here Paul sets at odds the idea of the natural and the idea of the spiritual. But if we think of nature, the, the natural, in terms of what God created in the beginning, then sin isn't part of the equation. And this is what Paul is teaching when he writes, For all, have sinned, uh, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And, verse, and in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Here we ought to remember that Paul is, is wanting to preach the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. And there are challenges associated with, with both audiences. Those who were Jewish among his audience were given to say, well, why do I need any additional gospel? Uh, the only good news we need is the law of God, which we already have. And the Gentiles were, were given to say, good news, salvation, what uh, we're doing quite fine on our own. We don't need God. We don't need his law and we don't need his gospel. So Paul is, is looking in, in one sense to even the playing field between Jew and Gentile. But he is also looking not to even the playing field, but to emphasize the difference between God and all sinners on earth. So he starts with the Gentiles, those who have never heard of the, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, he, will, he will get around to those who have the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall of their house, um, but he deals with those who are without the law. And his teaching is this, that even though they don't have the law, 
the law in its written Mount Sinai form. They may not have the law in that form, but they are still sinners. That's why he writes, for all who have sinned without the law. The teaching of God's word is that you don't need the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall. You don't need to have the Ten Commandments read to you even once a month to be a sinner. And granted, this this stands in some contrast to the ways of this world. Um, if If you get pulled over and given a ticket for going 60 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, you have every right to say, wait a second, who said this is a 45-mile-an-hour zone? There are no signs. The law is not made clear. And if you establish the fact, and if the judge is, uh, is being fair, you can argue that there are no signs. The last sign you saw said 60, so how can you be guilty of going 60 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. You can't be guilty. Uh, case dismissed. And, and the highway department has some work to do to put up the, the proper signs. Well, God's Word says you can't do that. That defense cannot be made to, uh, to have your case dismissed before God. The Apostle Paul begins to teach this already in in verse 20 when he says, uh, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse, not because they have the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall in their home or because they had a grandmother who took them to Sunday school for a few years when they were children. They are without excuse because they naturally know doesn't need to be posted on a sign beside the road of life. To make the metaphor work better, imagine that you are being pulled over for going 120 miles per hour. Uh, Even if the last sign you saw said 60, even if there was no previous sign at all, to go 120 miles per hour is quite obviously wrong. And, and it's obviously wrong because it's obviously dangerous, both to you and to others around you. But even then, the, the metaphor doesn't work perfectly unless we, uh, unless we take into consideration two things for sinners. Number one, the revelation of God in creation. This is Paul's point in Romans 1, that what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to all mankind, to every human being who is born and lives upon the face of the earth. Creation itself is really the road sign that leaves us without excuse. But number two, there is also the matter of the image of God in man. The antelope doesn't uh, doesn't get arrested for going too fast. The antelope does what it does, having not been made in the image of God. In the same way, the, the stray dog roaming the neighborhood doesn't have to answer to the seventh commandment in terms of its sexuality because it wasn't created in the image of God. So the second point then is what we might call Sinai law. First, natural law, 
Second Sinai law, the reference, of course, is to Mount Sinai and, and to the giving of the law in that place and at that time in human history. I think we tend to reduce the story told in Exodus 20. Uh, as we read earlier, we tend to reduce it to a, a Sunday school lesson. Uh, at best, it's maybe a story for adults, but um, it's one that just gets uh, told ceremonially, so to speak. But understanding the Sinai law requires that we we know and remember the context, which is why I read the full chapter this morning. It's abundantly clear. It starts out, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who has come down to you, who has set his love upon you, who has promised to bless you whether you deserve it or not. Second, I just delivered you out of slavery. And I did so even as you were grumbling about it on your way out. Uh, I just delivered you from Pharaoh in such a way that you really couldn't resist, even though you did resist, I have saved you. In other words, God had basically enforced his deliverance upon a very stubborn people, uh, like the heroic rescuer who doesn't wait to be asked to save someone, but who rather grabs a person and pulls them to safety only because he knows that if he doesn't, the person that he's rescuing will surely otherwise perish. And it really is a picture of our salvation in Christ. There, there are those who want to say, well, you know, God is a gentleman. He, he doesn't impose his will on the one he would save. But thanks be to God that that's the wrong metaphor. When the one who needs to be saved doesn't know that he needs to be saved and isn't willing to be saved. We, we should only hope that God isn't a gentleman who goes around asking perishing sinners, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, then never mind. And why do we need this context to the law given at Sinai? Because, because we need to see the graciousness of God in giving the law. In our sin, even after we're, we've been saved, we still tend to listen to the devil and to think that God is simply bossing us, uh, controlling us, keeping us from what is good, rather than seeing that the law is good. The context of the law at Mount Sinai is, 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 um, is God bestowing blessing upon blessing. It's basically to say, I've saved you, I have blessed you with salvation, and I would continue to bless you and increase your blessing, so here is my instruction. Now, even as I say that, here is my instruction, as I switch from blessing to instruction, my own flesh cries out, I don't need your instruction, don't tell me what to do. I trust that you can recognize the same about yourself. 
So we must begin with the gospel and the, and the cross of Christ. We must know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that God is good. That he is not the tyrant that Satan and the flesh would make him out to be. This is the Sinai law. And this is the law that Paul acknowledges belongs to Israel of old. It's the posting, if you will. It's the posting of the speed limit on a sign beside the road of life. But it's not new. It, it, it's what everybody knows already. Everyone knows that there is a God and that He is worthy to be worshipped. Everyone knows that it's only right to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Everyone knows that even to use His name in the, in the matter, uh, uh, or, or uh, they know that to use His name is either the matter of honoring Him or dishonoring Him. If you can't tell, I'm just going right through the, the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows that God is to be trusted in, that His care can be rested in. Everyone knows that his authority is built into the authority that he establishes on earth. Everyone knows that because of who God is, that you must not murder, that you you must not defile the marriage relationship or steal or lie or covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. In this way, the, the Sinai law is really... The Deuteronomic law already. Uh, you might be aware that about once a month we we read the law of God here in our worship uh, of God, and 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 we do so in the form of the Ten Commandments. But we can we can go to two different passages in order to do so. One is Exodus twenty, which we read this morning. Another is Deuteronomy chapter five. Well, what's the difference? Well, nothing in substance. It's the same law, but but the word Deuteronomy means second law. Uh, so the ten the ten commandments in Deuteronomy five is the law of God the second time around, uh, the giving of the law again. But you see, even the first giving of the law is a second time around, because the law of God is written upon the human heart by way of the image of God in, in man. That's, that's Paul's point. And it's, and it's the point made to counteract the lie of the evil one that God is oppressing us by his law. Instead, by giving his law to Israel at Sinai, again as recorded in Deuteronomy, God was simply repeating what he had written on every human heart by creating man in his own image. So the next point must be misused law. Paul writes in verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will uh, uh, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a a guide to the blind, a, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's a long quote, but the, the points are kind of stacked up 
uh, by Paul himself all the way along. He's, he's seeking to convict his readers um, of the misuse of the law. And it's not just the Jew. It's, it's whoever hears the law of God without humility. The proud person hears the law of God and says, Ah, now I know what is excellent. Now I am wise. Now I can instruct others. Now I have, uh, uh, now I have what I need to become a teacher to the ignorant. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like someone who, uh, who learns that E equals MC squared. But all they do with that knowledge of E equals MC squared, see, I can hardly say it right, uh, but all they can do is to teach someone how to, how to write an E and, and how to write an equal sign and how to write an M and how to write a C and how to put a number two slightly elevated above the letters. But what does that mean? I don't know. But E equals MC squared, so don't bother me. Well, what is the meaning of God's law? Is it just a, a guide for being good? No, it's, it's the standard by which we can see that we are not good and that we need a Savior. And so Paul goes on to write, You then who, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, uh, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, using the very law by which we think to honor God, we end up dishonoring Him because we have misunderstood the law and we have refused its proper purpose and ministry in our lives. We have misused the law if we think having it puts us in a position to teach others to be as holy as we are. Here we need to go back to Mount Sinai. And we need to hear God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, we need to hear God pointing out to his people, because that's exactly what he's doing. He's pointing out to them that there are no more whips or chains or ruthless masters standing over them. God is saying, take a look around yourself, look to the right, look to the left. Um, do you see any sign whatsoever of the slavery out of which I have just delivered you? No? Well, good. Now here's my law. Have, have you ever thought of that? that? That God did not give the Ten Commandments to Moses at the burning bush, telling him, go, give my law to my people, tell them that if they obey me, I will deliver them from Pharaoh. No, God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And in the end, God brought his grumbling, equivocating, vacillating people out of Egypt while destroying Pharaoh and the nation of, of Egypt as a whole. I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But what we must also see is the reaction of the people. We don't always read it, but in, in Exodus 20, when the, when the last commandment of God is given, what did the people do? Did they say, oh, good, now I have the proper education to be a guide for the blind, an instructor, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children? Now I have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. No, they, they trembled before God. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And we ought to do the same thing if we are receiving the law in the right way. Hearing the Ten Commandments, we ought to be able to see that we are in trouble. And we ought to look around us for a mediator. We ought to say with the psalmist in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we do not look in vain for a mediator if we look to Jesus Christ, because he is the mediator we need. He is our Moses. The problem for Israel was that Moses was just a man, and and he eventually died. Moses himself was was a sinner, and, and he died, leaving Joshua, if you remember the story, to carry on after him. And, and so the last point, as, as we close, is sacramental law. Somewhat suddenly, it would seem to me, in verse 25, Paul is talking about circumcision. Uh, he writes, uh, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Paul is talking about the, the sign of the covenant for Israel. And, and he is addressing the fact that Israel had, had taken the sign of the covenant and, and made it the matter of their obedience before God rather than looking for a mediator. And we do the same thing. We say, well, I'm, I'm not a murderer, so I'm okay. Uh, I haven't told a lie recently, uh, so I'm okay. In other words, we, we are always looking to reduce the requirement of God's law down to some single act, down to a single day in which we are doing better than in other days. Or some would say, well, I I was baptized. Baptism is the sign of God's covenant now that that Christ has come. So the Israel of old quickly came to say, well, I'm circumcised, therefore I can be my own mediator. I'm good with God on the basis of having been circumcised. While the false Israel of today says, I've been baptized. I'm on, I'm on the church roll. Uh, I'm in church each Sunday, mostly. Uh, therefore, I don't need a mediator. I, I can mediate for myself. But both circumcision and baptism are only signs 
of the salvation that God must provide. In substance, there really is no difference between the two sacraments, circumcision and baptism. They both point to Christ, to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. They both point to Christ as our mediator, the one who delivers us from the condemnation of the law of God. Imagine waking up one morning uh, to the sound of a tornado siren blaring. And imagine someone knocking on your door and saying, excuse me, but I'm here to tell you what that siren means. Uh, there is a storm coming and I am here to, uh, to tell you not only to take refuge, but how to take refuge so that you will survive the coming storm. Would you invite them in and listen to their instruction? Or would you say, uh, you know, thank you so much, but I'm good. Uh, I'll take my chances. I'll wait out the storm. So please, you know, get off my front porch. Well, there is a storm coming. So every time we feel a, a new pain in, in our bodies, every time, every time you find another strange lump under your skin, um, every time you get sick or narrowly avoid an accident on the road, the, the storm clouds are gathering. And, and the law of God is the siren. The, the law of God is calling you to take cover. Even more, the law of God is saying that there is no cover unless you are covered by Christ. No obedience, no misused spiritual practice, no religious institution will save you from the wrath to come. You need Christ. And every time you hear the law of God, that should be the message that you are hearing. I need Christ. The law of God certainly says, be good, be better than what you are. But if we really understand it, the law of God is, is telling us you're in trouble and your only hope is Christ. Your only hope is if God is just as gracious to save as he is just to judge. And the good news is that he is. He is just as gracious as he is just. So he issues his law to tell you what you need to hear, that Christ must be your mediator. He must provide forgiveness of sin for you. He must be your righteousness. And this is who he is. And this is what he is. As you only trust him to be that for you. Will you do it? Let's pray and ask God that you will. We thank you for the ministry of your word. 
O God, our Father, that you give us your law to convict us of sin. We thank you for the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And oh, that you would help us to see how much we need and how surely we can have the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, even as we but rest in him, even as we but trust in your plan of salvation. Grant us, O Lord, to understand these things and by understanding and faith to have a glorious hope within us. And this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.